It was somewhere in the early 2000s when I got a package in the mail from a friend who had just taken a job with an organization that purported to rescue people from slavery. And I've got to admit, and especially at the time, it was something of an embarrassing admission that I had no idea that that was a need. It blew my mind. There were people in slavery. There are still people in slavery. And it still does actually kind of blow my mind, but in a different way. Since that time, I've had the opportunity, the privilege, to be a partner with a few different organizations that do exactly that work. They rescue people living in slavery. They imprison and prosecute the men, predominantly men, who run black market slave organizations. And two things continue to pop up for me. The first being what I just mentioned, that it's awful, it's tragic, it's actually mind-numbing that human beings would sell and buy other human beings. Specifically, that human beings would sell or buy children. Secondly, I'm saddened at not just the cultural pattern, but even the pattern in my own life by which I recognize, or in which I recognize, that I don't maintain a regular concern. I lose focus about or towards this particular dark corner of the world. There are seasons when I do or we do focus on human trafficking, on human slavery, the fact that we're still buying and selling human lives, and then there are seasons that it's just not urgent. It doesn't pop up. It isn't in my regular, everyday conscience. And so I champion the lives, the voices, the energies of the people who do fight this battle, who do dig in day after day after day. And really specifically, over the next couple episodes, I want to highlight two folks who come from backgrounds really similar to mine and have not just dug in, but have maintained that pace. Beginning with Alan Smith, who's a dear friend of mine that I got to speak to a few weeks ago about this organization that he has started working with that allows him to place years worth of work among adolescents in a different sphere of life into this really dark corner and bring a bit of light. I enjoyed the conversation. I think you will too. Check it out. Hey man, how are you? I'm pretty good. How are you? I'm doing well. Where are you calling me from? Uh, well, this is my, my house, my little den, my little extra bedroom. Yeah. And are you still in, what's the town called? It's San, Santa Clarita? Yes, I am. Same place that you, uh, you, stay, you and Amy stayed here years ago. Yeah, I did. I've, stayed, I've probably stayed in that very room right there. Actually, not this room. You were downstairs, but... Um, oh, yeah. yeah okay. We got, we, got, we got relegated to the downstairs. Okay, good. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> um, well, hey, man. I, I'm stoked to talk through this. Uh, you and I have had conversations off and on since our days with Young Life about this job you've been doing. Yeah. Um, and so there's some overlap here with regards to, you know, kids and responsible adulthood. And a lot of that shows up in the book. Um, yeah. But for folks who, who don't get it, don't know, um, can you talk a little bit about what you actually do now? Like, what is your, what is your actual job? Yeah, absolutely. Are we recording right now? Is it happening right now? Yeah, we're on. I, I just roll. We just go. We just talk. 
<laughs> what is my actual job? Uh, I'm the executive director for a nonprofit organization based in Los Angeles called Saving Innocence. And our focus is the recovery and the restoration of child victims of sex trafficking. And uh, I help to build and mobilize a team that does exactly that. How do you end up there? So like for some folks, you know, uh, they'll come across the, you know, the, 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 the human trafficking, sex trafficking story or narrative because they are, um, I just had a conversation with someone else who's, who's a, they're an artist, they're a musician and they had this organization come to them and say, Hey, you've got this platform. We want to get our message out. You were working in youth ministry with young life. Um, and you end up working with saving innocence. How do you come across this? Like, how does this come across your, your purvey? Cause is, that's sort of the deal, right? Is for a lot of folks, it's like, this doesn't even pop up on your radar. Just like, it's a thing that's happening in the world all the time. It doesn't show up on our, it doesn't show up in the news very often. It doesn't, and it's not on my Facebook feed for the most part, unless someone's really intentional about it. So how does someone go from being youth ministry guy in Santa Clarita, California, working for Young Life to literally rescuing kids in like a horrid form of slavery? How do you, how do you get there? How does this show up in your life? Yeah, that's a great question. And, and not only does it not show up on people's news feeds, they, the average person, almost all people are thinking, oh, I've heard of that. It's in Thailand or Cambodia, right? Uh, the big aha is that it's actually here in our country in a big way. And to answer your question, how it showed up on my radar screen was about the year before I walked away from Young Life after 25 years, um, about the year I stepped aside, um, I started hearing about Saving Innocence. One of our staff women that was in Hollywood at the time had gotten to know a little bit about Saving Innocence. I said, what is that? You know, well, child victims of sex trafficking. I want to do Young Life for them. I said, I'm in. And that was kind of about it. She moved away. And, uh, but it stuck in the back of my mind as a dad with a daughter, as you know, Justin. Um, and little boys are also uh, part of this crime that's happening. But the majority is little girls. And so when I stepped away from Young Life, not knowing what was next, I cold called Saving Innocence. I got the number of the founder hmm. and I said, I'd love to meet with you. And uh, we had a life altering, a trajectory changing conversation for me in that moment. Of, what, okay. In what way? Like, how, why was it life altering? Because you'd been around adolescence for years. Yeah. You'd heard stories. I mean, you'd, you know, you'd been around kids who'd been beat up by their parents. You'd been around kids who'd been kidnapped. You'd been around kids who'd been on enough drugs like you you dealt with a whole array of th the things that that undo kids lives how was this like how does it show up yeah how does it happen for you after 25 years around adolescence yeah you're in an hour-long conversation with someone and your life is altered. like what 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 happens there well in all my days with young life you know we prided ourselves and i said it many many times we're going after the furthest out kids it's kind of the bumper sticker and I came to realize in that hour-long conversation in the five and a half years since then is that we, me, and most of Young Life really doesn't know what the furthest out kid has been through, what they look like, where mm -hmm. they are. It's just, it just sounds good. We're going after the furthest out kid. That's the idea. And, um, and I came to understand that there's these child victims of sex trafficking and how it's life-altering. I never, I never heard the word in my Young Life trainings or in my travels. And certainly there were kids in our midst that were being trafficked but it was never a point of conversation. No one understood it. No one, no yeah. one knew what it was. And to this day, largely they don't. And so when I began to understand that these average age of entry is about 12 years old, our youngest little kid at Saving Innocence right now is 10. 
Wow. And these kids, these young young adolescents are being owned as someone's property. They're being bought and sold a dozen or more times a day to yeah. an adult male, mostly. This is a whole. This is a game changer. I, th- those furthest out kids weren't in that category, as far as I was concerned. Right. So it's a, it's like a shocking thing for you. Yeah. Like you come into like the actual the actual knowledge, and it it hits you upside the head. Why not freak out? Like, how do you not freak out about that? And like, because it's a big fat issue, right? It's not like I mean, like I'm I'm talking the the sort of the surface level game. We're not talking about, um, hey, there are a few kids. Uh, and it happens on occasion in the States. Even we're talking about like tens of thousands. Uh, uh, conservative estimates say at least 300,000 minors are being trafficked in the United States. These are U S born American citizens. These aren't kids being shipped in from a third world country. Yeah. And, and a lot of people would say that number is actually low. It's just hard to verify because it's such in the darkness, but based on what we know, it's probably a bigger number than that. And uh, it, it's right in our midst. It's in every zip code, and it's in, it's an invisible crime for the most part. So, what keeps you from just not like what keeps you from doing the thing that a lot of folks will do with this, which is to think, "Geez, that's big. That's gross. That's that's awful." Um, I, I need to kind of be at arm's length from this. I'll write a check. I can write you a check. Yeah. But I, I like, I don't want to. I don't. I don't want to get involved with something like that. Just that's big. It's one thing to be like, "Hey, I want to talk to kids about God." And like, hey, we're on the level, same language. This is like, I don't, where the hell do I start? Like, what keeps you from, like, what motivates you to actually get involved, get involved, as opposed to just write a check or do something supportive from the side? Yeah, you know, that's a, you're, you're touching on an interesting concept. I've learned that there's a thin line between not knowing and not wanting to know. Hmm. I had breakfast hmm. with a potential donor recently, and he slid a check. I think it was five thousand dollars across the check across the table. He said, "Listen, I don't want to hear any. I, we can't talk about this. I don't want to talk about. I don't trust myself. Wow. He's going to lose his mind." And, and that sort of idea is what uh, a major factor of this being the largest growing criminal enterprise in the world. The largest growing criminal enterprise in the but world. Currently, the right now, this is growing faster than anything else. Drug trafficking, arms trafficking. Uh, you name it, this is the fastest growing criminal enterprise that there is. Some 40 to 45 million people globally are enslaved via human trafficking, many of them sex trafficking and many of them minors. And um, because it's really tough to look at, Justin, I mean, it's absolutely horrific. And I've had my moments where I haven't slept for a day or two because of what I've encountered and what I've heard. But um, when these little children are being raped a dozen, 15, 20 times in a day, yeah. and they get up and do it the next day, yep. Like you got to have a tough stomach and a resolve to look at that in the face and get involved. Sure, the easy thing is write a check, and we'll take your check. Great, send a check in. Cool, but uh, to get more involved in that, it's uh, it's a different thing. So uh, the little segue here, which leads you to leads me to uh, I want to talk about Jessica. Jessica, Jessica, last name is Midkiff, correct? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. As I so Jessica Midkiff is is a co-author with you on the book. We're going to talk a little bit. She's also she also worked with you um, at Saving Innocence. Yeah. You, uh, her particular journey, she comes through a pretty different doorway into this because she's not someone who's like, hey, that's a terrible thing. I need to do something about it. She was trafficked. Yes. Um, can you tell, like, who is she? Like, what's her, if you, if, you know, to whatever degree you can, like, what's yeah. her story? How does she end up here? Where'd she come from? What does that look like? Yeah. And, and, and she's a pretty typical 
uh, profile of a lot of these kids being trafficked. And by the way, in the book, we'll talk about it. She tells her whole story, lays it out in a very vulnerable way in chapter two of the book. So we'll get to that. I wouldn't be telling any secrets out of school here because she shares it. But the long story short of it, a lot of these kids come from a really tough childhood. They've experienced abuse and neglect along the way. A lot of them already are placed in the foster care system. She wasn't, but a lot of them are because the stuff at home was so bad. Hmm. And so they're oftentimes running away from the abuse and neglect that they have experienced at home by someone who should have been protecting them. Instead, they've been violating them. And they run into the arms uh, of, a, of a trafficker who's preying on them. It's been said that within the first couple of days, one out of three children runaway, child runaways, will be approached by a trafficker. They can read the vulnerability. It's all around them. And uh, they offer them all the things that they've been missing, uh, security, shelter, uh, love and affection and attention. Mm -hmm. And these young, vulnerable minds who are in crisis already um, step into that thinking it's one thing, but it turns out to be a whole other. She ends up with you uh, partnered up in writing this book. Um, she, how does she get rescued out? Like, how does she get out? Like, how, she ends up here. She's got a job. She's working with people from whence she's come. She didn't. Did she just up and walk out? Did someone have to go get her? That, that's a, uh, you're touching on another great point, Justin. Um, if she was in this life being um, uh, abused and assaulted for about ten years, and if you were to sort of play the numbers out, it's staggering. And uh, at the end of those ten years, um, she was absolutely exhausted. She was by that time she had her own child, and um, she was ready. So often the abused has to be emotionally ready. You know, there's a Stockholm syndrome that, that pumps in where they, the, the, uh, the abuser, the abusee begins a form of bond. It's called trauma bonding with the abuser. And um, through all the different things that have to be in place, she was finally ready to leave. And um, kind of the fear of the unknown was no longer as big as it once was. And, and someone helped her out. Hmm. Oftentimes there is a quote unquote rescue, if you will. Somebody will kick down a door and uh, pull a child out. Those kinds of things will happen. In her case, in a lot of cases, it's, a, it's finally emotionally ready, physically ready to say, I am leaving at great peril. Uh, the trapper or the owner represents uh, their ownership in every way, shape, or form. And so when they leave, they're doing it at their own risk. And she was ready at the age of 21 to do that. You wrote a book together. Yeah. Um, and uh, it's called Men Fight For Me is the name of the book. Yeah. yeah. Um, and it's got a pretty interesting premise. Um, oftentimes, the, 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 the approach to... Uh, to trafficking and the remedy for trafficking has to do with advocacy, has to do with funding, has to do with funding programs, um, has to do with you know aftercare for for kids. You're addressing this trafficking issue. The, the subtitle is the role of authentic masculinity in ending sexual exploitation and trafficking. Part of what you're pointing out in the book is that there there's a way in which um, manhood. Um, and like what you're saying, authentic masculinity actually plays a role. That as a that as a male, I can perhaps should live differently mm -hmm. um, in light of this global slave trade. And in fact, the fact that I don't live differently actually exacerbates the problem. The fact yeah. the fact that this is what I'm picking up from your book. There, in light of inauthentic masculinity, or kind of a twisted masculinity. Um, yeah. There are shadows 
in culture that allow these kids to live where they live and allow this thing. Can you talk a little bit more in depth? Like I'm, I'm, I'm kind of paraphrasing from the book. You have a pretty, pretty clear uh, thesis here about the relationship between masculinity and kids being trafficked specifically for sex. Yeah, it's very simple, Justin. Men are the problem. Um, and, and you might say, someone might say, well, which problem are you talking about? I would say, well, pick a problem you pick see a pro- in this world and tell them <laughs> find a bunch of dead men behind it. Yes. Um, in this particular problem, men are undeniably, indisputably the problem. And that was the big aha I had a couple of years into being my time at Saving Innocence. Okay, almost all the sellers are men, traffickers. Almost all the buyers are men. And I'd show up at a meeting, a training, a something or other, and there's almost no men there. It's like, what's going on? Uh, and then it hit me. Okay, if men are the problem, if you can isolate and define a problem in life, now you've got a great chance of coming up with a remedy, a solution. Hmm. Well, if men are the problem, then men are the solution. And so a, a small percentage of men are actually going down that dark path where they're buying a child or an adult for sex. But there's the, 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 the challenge for the book is that what sweeps into all the rest of us men is that we are knowingly and in many cases unknowingly contributing to this exploitive culture that is the soil by which human trafficking grows out of. And so the way in which we treat women, talk about women, um, you know, if we, I don't know how much time we have, we could talk about pornography, which is the, the major on-ramp and the desensitization of future buyers and future sellers. That's a massive problem. And so us men, I'm not buying anybody, but I'm gonna look at uh, pornography, my wife's not around. Okay, well, a lot of those porn, quote, actors are human trafficking victims. Hmm. You're literally funding their rape and watching them getting raped, like that's what's happening. And so the challenge of the book is to just shake men a little bit and say, come on guys, we can do better, let's do it. You're talking about the interconnectedness of things. It's the, uh, I had a conversation earlier uh, about the, the, it would be so much easier if, um, if I could believe the notion, which is a very strangely American notion, by the way, that like my hyper individuality, that I get to make my choices, I get to live in my space, I don't want other folks telling me what to do, uh, messing with my my choices, what I do in my own household, how I spend my money. Part of what you're getting out here is like even the way I understand myself as a man and the choices I make behaviorally, how I live out my masculinity has this cascading effect that I can't just choose to be who I am, how I am without actually having like ripple effect on the world around me. And in this case, that the way I behave in the context of my own masculinity actually has an impact on whether or not there's a nine-year-old girl being raped 20 times Mm -hmm. in Indonesia today or in Las Vegas. Yeah. Well, that's exactly right. And, and even if hypothetically there's a man out there listening right now that really is a good guy and there's plenty of them out there living in a neutral way, like he's not going down all those other rabbit paths. My challenge to that guy, which is a lot of guys is Great. I'm glad you're not down the dark path. Now, let's go join this. It's not like the right now, the, 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 the kind of what's happening in today's culture and society is it's it's not OK just to don't be a racist, to be an anti-racist. That's yeah. kind of like the buzzword, like fight yes. against it. And so I'm saying this, don't just be theologically and, and, and intellectually against the trafficking and exploiting of women and children. Do the work. Join the fight and yeah. be against it. Pick up a weapon and stand a post, as Colonel Nathan Jessup says in A Few Good Men. <laughs> yeah, is there a reason? I mean, is it just that it's is it is it just that it's like hard to look at? I mean, is there a reason why we talk about like like forty five million? That's a huge number. It's like it's a massive, massive number. 
Yeah. And 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 so far as it is like the fastest growing criminal uh, enterprise in the world, why doesn't this get traction in the long run? So like, it, and I, I get that this happens with, and then there's another, there's a follow up to this. I get that this happens with, uh, with global poverty to some degree, um, which has similar relationship between like my behaviors and what's happening on the other side of the planet, the kind of butterfly effect. It does seem like because it is as dramatic a thing as, as it is, um, it's like a bomb going off every day. That would make the news. If there was a bomb going off every day in America, yeah. that, that would make the news. There are thousands and thousands of kids missing from neighborhoods in yeah. the States. Yeah. Why is it this like how does this end up as quiet as it does? Yeah. And it, it is picking up traction in the last year or so. And the Jeffrey Epstein debacle with his island, and you know that made that Netflix did a documentary, and, and there's those things. There is more and more chatter about it. But you know, you're getting at a, a dark piece of the puzzle here. Um, eighty percent of the children being trafficked are young girls of color. Uh, in our course, about six, uh, about sixty percent are young black girls, uh, about twenty percent Latina, and twenty percent everything else. Uh, most of those kids, as I mentioned earlier, come from adverse childhood situations. A lot of inner city kids that are growing up in a, in a, in a hard situation are vulnerable to this trafficking. So you think about it. Who are the people of power yeah. in our country? Who are the people that decide things? Who are the people that make movies and yes. go on the news? Uh, it's typically not those people yeah. that look like those victims. Yeah. Typically and white so, men. Well, you said it. And, you know, honestly, um, not that everybody who doesn't talk about it is a graphic part of the problem, but um, I just, anyone who doesn't take an interest in this and have the same kind of outrage, I want to look at them side-eyed and say, what are you, a buyer? You're actually buying right now, aren't you? That's why you don't want to stop it. Hmm. Uh, it's, it's pervasive all throughout at the highest levels. You got members of police departments and judges and city government officials that are mm -hmm. active buyers of people and... So they don't want to stop it or shine a light on it. Yeah, there's, the a whole, there's a whole chapter in your book about who the buyers are. You call the the section is called the big three, and you talk about who the victims are, and you talk and you talk about the buyers, victims, yeah. traffickers, buyers. And the the chapter on buyers, it, you know, for folks who are going to pick up the book, and you should, if you, you're going to go to fightforme.net, and that's where you can find access to the book, information about the book. But the chapter on who the buyers are is actually, I would suggest, like most the most interesting and revealing question. Uh, and revealing chapter because it actually does put the thing at home and, and the way it, it does actually land the thing like squarely where like why is this necessary to talk about why is it necessary why do you want to read a book you know called men fight for me about masculinity and because most of the people who are going to pick up this book and you have access to are going to be folks who are like me they're white males who need to understand like hey <laughs> you your position of power your privilege as much all of you hear all this chatter this is a very real effect that your power and your privilege are having in the world, and you need to own your actual place before you just dismiss things. And it makes me think of, and it's a really interesting parallel here. Is uh, my, one of my favorite songs is a song called uh, Georgia Lee by a guy named Tom Waits. Uh, Tom was living in Petaluma at the time, and you'll remember Polly Class. Polly Class, young girl who was kidnapped out of her room uh, in the middle of the night, and you know, two days later, there were news reporters on the street, and her dad, long term, became like a face for kidnapping and like the plight of kidnapping. In parallel to that story, 
the exact same timeline, there was a young girl named Georgia Lee. And Georgia Lee, similar story, kidnapped out of her neighborhood, missing for almost the exact same amount of time, was found right around the same amount of, in the same amount of time, but there was never a news story about it. And the difference was that Georgia Lee was a black girl who was kidnapped out of a black neighborhood. Right. And Tom's, you know, Tom Waits' song is literally this lament of like the actual only difference is these things are expected if these kids are brown or black. And those aren't those those stories don't show up. And they do show up when for the for the most part when they're, you know, or more so when they're white kids. What a what a strange um and sad revelation for us that part of we have part of what we have to own is that we still don't see the world as broken in that particular way. We still just don't see it that way. It's the kids are kids. And like you said earlier, we're going after, you know, Young Life will say, and other folks will say, the furthest out kid. I don't think we know what we mean when we say those things. Because we're not willing to own that systematically, those kids are naturally, or not naturally, those kids are systematically pushed out further and ignored more. There's just, there's no other conclusion to come to. The difference is you're black. The difference is you're brown, and that's why we're not talking about it. Well, the other the other important factor, which is all interconnected to, to what you just said, is that about 80% of the victims are already foster children in the foster care. Um, in a sense, they're uh, throwaway kids. People have called it that, sort of put that label on it. They're, they're the kind of kids that if they go missing, there's not a huge effort or any effort at all to go find them. I mean, just imagine for yourself, Justin, that your sweet little girl went missing. It'd be World War III in Northern California. Yeah. You, you'd have 100 people in your front yard saying, what are we going to do? You'd hire a private detective. There'd be signs on the freeway. I mean, you'd be on the news yeah. looking for your... You wouldn't sleep again. No. Okay, so you're not a very... Uh, you're not a very right target for these predators hmm. because they know that. Uh, but the kids that literally go missing and literally nothing happens, that's a much easier, lower risk uh, target for that vulnerable child. Well, I'm glad you're doing what you're doing. Uh, I'm glad that you do the work that you do with Saving Innocence, and I'm specifically glad that you're, that you're putting this book in the world because actually the the angle um, – you know, I'm talking to a few folks this season about human trafficking um, yeah. because it is it, it is this thing that go, it shows up for like, like a year. It has a moment, and then it goes away like as a story for five to seven years at a time, um, and which is part of why it ends up – as you know, as uh, bloated as it is, as a as an actual epidemic, um, but this but this particular angle uh, that has to do with who I am as a person and tying my identity to a problem, I think it's not only unique. I think it's uh, I think it's it's necessary. It's so much easier with something that seems so distant, and this is true with racism yeah. as well. But like that that I can you know it, it I don't I don't identify. With the problem, and part of what your book does is say, well, that's actually the problem. The problem yeah. is that you don't identify with it, and you are actually the hinge point of the problem. You know, Justin, uh, one of the things that really lit me on fire, and and it's in chapter three of the book. Uh, a friend named Rachel tells her story. She came from a two-parent household, a dad who loved her. She was a homecoming queen, a, a volleyball star, 3.9 GPA, like came from a great home and great environment, went away to college, right? So far, she sounds a lot, lot like my daughter. Had yes. a great home, did great in school, played ass, went away to college. And her junior year, this is not a foster child at 10 years old. Her junior year, she got approached by a well-spoken man in a three-piece suit, had a modeling agency. She signed on. 
And then this man began to traffic her through threats of her life and her family and her roommate. And, and she was stuck in this horror. And, hmm. and she said this thing to me where the title of the book comes from this. She said, uh, after five months, I began to believe the lies and the shame and the guilt that I, that I was being told. And I could no longer fight for myself. And then she said, I needed someone to fight for me. Wow. Like even right now, I'm telling you, Justin, like I'm getting chills because it's like, Jeez. yes, I'll fight for you. Yeah. And I'm going to see how many men, how many good men I can get to fight for you and all the others that are like this. And then we added the term men. She didn't say men from fight me. She said, I needed someone to fight for me. And we added the word men in the title because the target audience for this book, we want everyone to read it. And there's a lot of women that have read it early read and they're loving it. But um, the target audience is that male audience because we're the biggest part of the problem. That's really so good. let's go get them. Yeah, man. Alan, thank you so much for your time. Uh, we'll include a link to uh, to fightforme.net in, in the show notes and um, and get people to lay eyes on this, uh, your story, as well as Jessica's story. And really specific, I mean, most of my audience are people who are like me. They tend to be men. They tend to be white. Yeah. And they tend to not really actually see the link. And your book does, and your work uh, uh, with Saving Innocence really does tend to build a bridge for folks like me. That, like you are, you are central to this problematically, and you are in a position of power to make a significant difference. So, thank you for what thank you're doing, man. Oh, thank you. I appreciate. it. I feel like I finally hit the big time. I'm on the At Sea podcast. I've been looking at it for a few years, and I don't know what I don't know where I go from here. This is incredible. And thank you for listening to this episode of the At Sea podcast. If you would like to follow up with Alan, check out his book and the organization he is working with and for to do this really remarkable work, you're going to want to jump to savinginnocence.org. If you'd like to be part of the team of folks who make this podcast possible regularly, go to patreon.com backslash Justin McRoberts, and we would love to have you on the team. Until next time.